Open your Bible, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, yes, children, you can go out for Christmas play practice. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 is where we'll be today. As we've been in our series on the church, it has felt like we've hit 1 Corinthians a couple times now, and it feels like we're going backwards a little bit. We looked at 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 5, we mentioned that a couple weeks ago, on talking about church discipline. Today, we're in 1 Corinthians 3, and I'll go ahead and read. But I, Paul says to the church there, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a way, in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Paulus, are you not merely human, being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation, foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort, what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. <coughs> if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are sobering words from Paul. Lord, would you help them appropriate them to our lives now? As we see the treasure that is the church, let us treat her like your bride that she is. Let us love her, take care of her. Let's build the right things. Let us trust Jesus for who he is to grow what we cannot. Reorient our perspective, Lord, about this thing we call the church. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Most of you know that I, well, if you haven't been paying attention, most of you know by now, I came from a Baptist background. And in Baptist circles uh, that I have been a part of, 
uh, there's a statement that is used that I've heard often, and it goes like this. Baptists, the way they multiply is through division. Multiplication through division. There's one way to plant a church. That's you send out a group of people, and, and uh, maybe you provide financial assistance. You give guidance, and you say, God bless you, right? And you, you plant a church. Another way to plant a church is, well, you can have a church split. Maybe you've seen that. Multiplication through division. Whether it's personality differences, doctrinal differences, pride, all kinds of sin, allegiance to a cult of personality, like we'll see here, stubbornness. Division can happen all the time in God's church. I wonder, really, if someday people will stand before the Lord, Christians, and the Lord will say, what did you do with my church? What will they say? We've been walking through a series that has hit a range of doctrinal issues related to the church, talking about the message of the church, the, we've talked about the origin of the church, talked about the, the, the marks of the church. We very easily could have titled today's message, message, The Divisions of the Church. We're not calling it that. When sin, sinners come together, sparks are bound to fly, and when you do church your way and not God's way, Trouble always comes. You have a church that's marked by division. And so if you want a healthy church that is marked not by faction, but by Christ, let us see this morning that God's church does not belong to you or I, but it belongs to Christ, the true, firm foundation that we're going to see today. And so Paul speaks here to a church that's in the midst of turmoil. Actually, if you were to turn the page backwards and see to 1 Corinthians 1.10, you would see Paul has already brought up the issue of divisions. He actually says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by close people, so Paul's gotten a report, and this is what it was, that there's quarreling among you. What I mean is this. Some say I follow Paul. Others say I follow Paulos. Others say I follow Cephas. That would be Peter. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, right? No. And so it seems that there's these different factions that have, that, have, that have come up on a basis of following after different personalities. And so Paul addresses this here in 1 Corinthians 1. He then talks about what true wisdom is according to Christ in comparison to the world, that the wisdom of God looks like foolishness to the world, but it's actually found on a Roman cross. Chapter 2, one of, the, one of my most favorite chapters in all of Scripture, talks about how if you want to have the mind of God, you must have the Spirit. And the Spirit reveals the wise mind of the Lord. And then we have this passage that's right before us here. And so Paul begins. So here's the first thing that Paul is going to say. He's going to say, I'm calling you to move on from spiritual infancy that is marked, is defined by division. Move on from spiritual infancy. I had to talk to you like you were infants when I first showed up to Corinth five years ago. See Acts 18. I had to show up, talk to you like you were infants then. And five years later, y'all, I still got to talk to you the same way. What's going on here? 
And so he, he calls them out here. He says, you're still immature. And he says, I can't call you spiritual people. You're carnal. You're people of the flesh. And if you know the church in Corinth, you know them to be fighting words right there because they thought they were spiritual. They thought, look at the spiritual gifts that we have. And so Paul goes after them and says, you think you're so spiritual, and yet you're so divisive. This is one of the reasons why he spends the longest section in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 on spiritual gifts to correct them because they thought they were spiritual. There's fewer things that are more ironic than someone who talks about how spiritual they are, how much they care about the miraculous, and yet they're devoid of the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts without the fruit of the Spirit are worthless. And so church in Corinth, you think you're so spiritual in your bunch of spiritual babies. It's cute when a two and a half year old is wearing a diaper and he wants a sucker. It's very strange when a 25 year old is doing the same thing. I was looking up, I had seen this on TV at one time and I was looking up uh, this disorder called paraphilic infantilism. It's also known as adult baby syndrome where you have adults who still want to wear diapers, still want to have a, a bottle for mommy and still want to pay, play with baby's toys. Think about how, how weird that is. And I was like, that is, that is such a great picture for what is happening right here. And Paul is saying you should have moved on from your spiritual infancy. And yet there's infighting and it shows how immature you are. So every time you have a spiritual blowout, every time you replace Christ with man, you are demonstrating who you really are. And if you're wondering if I use blowout there the way you thought I used it, of course I did because I have a kid underneath two in my home. It's just, it's just wrong. And so we should beware that we are not immature, putting up people in the place of Christ and leading towards division. We should consider what happens when you do this. I've seen it, you've seen it. When you, when you replace Christ with sinful men and women, uh, first thing you'll do is that you'll make them your savior and you'll overlook their flaws. You'll make them your savior and you'll overlook their flaws. Paul rhetorically asked that question that, that we, we quoted a little while ago. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Not your favorite worship group, not your favorite podcast that you listen to, favorite Christian author, TV preacher, pastor or leader in this church died for you. Only the God-man, only Jesus Christ could do that and take the ransom for our sins and die in our place. I'm just a man, I'm just a sinner, and I am at my best when I point away from myself, John the Baptist, he says, I must decrease so that he would increase. And so do not worship men. Don't put them in the place of God. When you do, please hear me on this. You are prone, you have opened up a large door to abuse to come into the church because you will excuse behavior in the name of perhaps somebody's giftings and you will accept what you would have never normally. Don't put people in Christ's place. Instead of following, here's another one, instead of following and look more like Jesus over time, you'll end up in a very strange way following and looking more like that person over time if you put them in the place of Christ. I can think of whole movements that exist within evangelicalism. I can think of one in particular over the last 15 years 
where I've seen my peers follow after certain cults of personality, and they'll end up taking on their mannerisms, their jokes. It's, it, it's, it's very odd. Their adherents take on the temperament of their heroes. I've seen peers model themselves after certain pastors who have a shock, jock, crass, inappropriate, crude humor approach from the pulpit. And they're just doing that because that's what their guy did. And all the while, reverence for Jesus is being missed. Watch out when you follow people. Are you really following just them in their sin or are you being careful to sift through so that you would take what you need but you're ultimately following Jesus? Be watchful that you never replace Christ with other people in his church. That's spiritual infancy. That's the road to division. I should say this. I want to clarify. I'm not saying that you should not follow your leaders in the church and trust them. But what I am saying is that you don't put them on a pedestal that only Jesus can be on. Don't do that to me. Don't do that to our elders. Don't do that to your hero. One of the most, you've heard that statement. One of the worst things you could ever do is meet your heroes, right? It's no less true when it comes to Christians, unfortunately, sometimes. We're just servants. In fact, that's what Paul is going to say starting in verse 5. So move on from spiritual infancy defined by division. But the second thing he's going to do is he's going to give us a few pictures of the church and what it looks like to reorient our mind around how we should think about the church. We looked at a couple of these last week. You remember? We looked at one of them was, we talked about the church as like the body of Christ. So spiritual gifts all come together, one body, many parts. We talked about how the church is like the bride of Christ, and so you should love the church. You can't say you love Jesus and then not love what he loves, and he loves the church. But there's three more images that I want to share with you here, and I want to say I have been looking forward to for months to share this with some of us because of the hope that it provides here. First one, the church is like a field. It's like a field where only God can give the growth. Paul says, who am I? Who is Apollos? Paul planted the church. Apollos was another Christian, uh, a, a talented order preacher who had come in, had been in Corinth. You can see that in Acts 18. And he says, we're just men we're just tools that God used for the time appropriated for us. We're just servants. Those famous words from Nicholas von Zinzendorf, the missionary, who said this, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. What a motto to live by. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. We're servants who are here today, not just pastors, but also all of us who are ministers in our own way. We're here today, gone tomorrow. Here for a sliver of time for God's purpose. Some of you older saints have said to me that each pastor who has been here in the history of Bethesda was here according to their giftings for the time that God brought them here. And so some of the names that you've brought up, for example, some of you have brought up like Laverne Hofer. He was here in the 70s and 80s, and he was the builder pastor. Not this building in particular, but all the other buildings that are here underneath his tenure According to his gifting, God used him in that way. Another one would be, the other name that's brought up would be Eldon Booznitz, right? And so you think of Eldon, and as I've heard you, just taking what you have said to me, Eldon brought in that biblical expository preaching. So Bethesda has that long tradition of being people 
of the book. I am glad to stand in that tradition. And he is, we are following what has been brought before us. And another one might be Phil Plett. Uh, Phil Plett, worship pastor here uh, during the 2000s. Uh, really, uh, many of you have told me about how he brought in contemporary forms of worship music. And I just want to say praise God for Phil because he took care of that so I didn't have to. We have contemporary music mixed hymns and it's a wonderful thing. Sermon is coming on that one in a little while, okay? Each pastor has come, been placed on this rock for the time they're supposed to be here. I, I think for myself, for the sliver of time that I'm here, in, in all things being equal, the sliver of time that I'm here, I found myself lately saying, like Laverne, I'm a builder as well. But I'm not here to build buildings as much as I am to build healthy ministry structures and deep disciples. That's what I'm most interested in. At least that's what seems to be the calling as of right now. We may not know why God places us where he places us for the time he places us, but he is sovereign and he knows what he's doing. And all of you Lord of the Rings fans just went there in that quote from the Lord of the Rings where Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish it need not happened in my time, to which he gets the reply, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to do is to decide what to do with the time that is given to us. So Paul says, you want the right perspective. Understand this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Men cannot grow what only God can grow. And so take this glorious truth and start plugging it in to the different spheres of your life and consider the hope that it can give you. Are you a parent who did everything right, raised your child in the way that he was supposed to go, and then it seemed to fall apart as they walked away? You sent them to the church activity, to the camp retreat, to the youth event. You prayed and you did your best, and now you're heartbroken. I know there are some of us in here, that's what you're walking through right now. Because it seems like you have nothing to show for all the work that was done as they're not following Christ. And I just want to say, friend, you release yourself of that burden that you could have never fulfilled to begin with. Your ministry is called to be obedient and faithful. God's ministry is to produce the growth that you could have never produced to begin with. It's the Lord's responsibility. And so you surrender that prodigal son or daughter to the Lord, and you trust him to do what is right. It was never your responsibility to produce the results. Only Jesus can give the growth. You planted, you watered, yes, but he gives the growth. Have you invested your time? How about another one? Give me another one here. Have you invested your time to disciple someone, you, like you brought them into your home, you took them out to eat, you invested time and energy, costly time, costly time. You, you gave them the wisdom that, that you had about what God has shown you through his word. And then, like a dog that returns to his vomit, the way the Proverbs talk about, this person dropped you like a hot potato and walked out. And maybe you find yourself here today feeling a little disillusioned. So whenever someone talks about making disciples, you go, I'm a little hesitant if I'm honest because the way it turned out last time didn't turn out too well. And I would just ask you to reorient yourself and remember 
You are called to plant. You are called to water. But the results of producing the growth of discipleship was never yours to begin with. Release the results that are not yours and trust the Lord to do what is right. Have you been entrusted with a ministry area, perhaps? Then you had to hand it off to someone who was less incompetent, and then you watched it crumble in front of you? There's fewer things that are more heart-wrenching than building something up and then watching it get torn down. Reorient yourself and see you're called to be obedient, to plant into water, but the results of the growth belong to Christ. Leave them up to him. When we surrender the results to God, we choose to live in obedience. What may have seemed like failures before are just a, a ripple in time of God's sovereignty working and willing as he pleases. Take that burden off of yourself. We're helpless to change anyone's life. My wonderful mother, who is here with us this morning, has said to me often, you cannot change people. And so once you realize that, you can take the pressure off yourself and go, my job is to be obedient. His job is to do what only he can do. So that's failure. Flip around. Same thing is true. All the victories in ministry that you may have experienced don't belong to you. Don't belong to me either. All the results still belong to Christ. Have you experienced something wonderful where you go, oh, I'm so glad God worked through me, got, got to do that, got to be a part of it, got, got to see that wonderful thing happen. You can't take the credit for it. Some of the most dangerous things are, come from success in ministry because we're prone to make an idol out of that thing or make an idol out of ourselves. We need no golden calf. We're very good at making idols out of ourselves. Watch ourselves. Let's remind ourselves, what do we have that we did not receive? If then we received it, why should we boast as if we did not receive it? Be humble and acknowledge that you and I are just blunt tools in God's tool shed that he just so happened to grace with being a part of his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It is by grace we get to be his servants. So if there's ever a church that should understand what Paul is saying about how the church is like a field, it should be a church that is filled with people whose occupations is that of being a farmer. I think of how one of you came up to me when it was raining one day, and there was almost like, like, a, like a giddy joy. It's raining. And he was going to go to his different properties to see how many inches of rain had been at, at different places. Some of you are looking at each other going, was he talking about me? No, you need to work that out, Okay. I've seen that on many of your faces. But this person understood one word, that as a farmer, he was incapable of accomplishing his job to produce the harvest. And so he understood that one word, dependency, dependency. And so no act of God takes place in Bethesda's future. No act that will happen. In our 81st year and following, will you and I ever be able to take the credit for? We plant and we water, but he gives the growth. And so let us place our dependence on him and not man. This church is like a field. Second one, church is also like a building. Okay? I'm using my mother as an example again. And so here's the church. This is what my mother used to do growing up. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Help me out. Open the door in. All the people. Okay. Got that? Got that? Okay. All the people, right? colloquially we'll use that word or, or commonly we'll use that word church and, and we tend to talk about the, the brick and the mortar but 
we know that the way the Bible uses that word, more importantly than the brick and the mortar, is to talk about the gathering. This right here. This is the church. Not so much this, but this right here. This is the gathering that is taking place. And so what, God, what Paul does here in this passage is he compares this gathering, or the one in Corinth that was taking place, and he compares that to the building. And so it is, it is a godly community that Paul, Paul built and was built upon after he left. In the same way, in 1943, 10 charter members came together and planted or built the foundation of Bethesda Church. And in the last 80 years, much work has been done to build up from that foundation since then. And so I want you to consider two things. What is that foundation? First, that foundation is Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone. You're either going to trip on the cornerstone, or you're going to let it be the foundation upon which you build healthy and good things according to God's word. Christ is the cornerstone. It's a warning and a reassurance. Don't build things here that are unbiblical, but only that which corresponds with his word. And you're going to build something that's immovable with everlasting effects. The second thing to consider is the day. That's a technical term in your New Testament. Also in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. Understand that the day of the Lord is coming. And Paul speaks about a judgment that will take place. And whether our good deeds as Christians, if you look at right there in verse 12, whether it was gold, silver, precious stones, good things, or wood, hay, and straw, worthless things, those will be revealed by the fire, by the judgment on that last day. There are going to be surprises. Some whom you and I will have gone, man, they're going to have riches in the kingdom to come. Maybe that person lived in such a way where he did good deeds, but he did it all for himself. Like, that is, that is such a humbling word. Like, do, do you realize how severe that is in this moment, right now, as I'm preaching? Is what I am doing in this moment, is you, are you, as you are seeking to understand this word, are, right now, are we living in such a way where it's going to be either hay or precious stones? Right now. That is, that is a sobering thought. That is, that, that is a weighty thought to think about. There will be surprises. There will be others whom you and I may have overlooked, and they will have a first seed in the kingdom to come. Perhaps some of us go, okay, well, if, well for many good works that we do as Christians are going to be burned by fire because they ended up being worthless, why even go to heaven or go to be with the Lord in the afterlife? What's, what's the point if, it's, if you're, if you're going to be poor in the kingdom to come? I'd ask you to consider this. Imagine two men in a burning building. We'll say it's a hotel, okay? A burning hotel building. Fire alarm goes off. They come out of the building. Imagine they come out that front door dramatically all at the same time. One of them has his luggage with him, and the other one just has, just has himself. He just has the clothes tinged by the fire. Question for you. Which one will have more gratitude? You might say, well, well, the person who has all his possessions, but in that moment, do you think they're going to care about their possessions more or the fact that their life was spared or saved? I think it's that their life will be spared. Every single Christian 
who spends eternity with the Lord will be thankful to be in his presence. But I want to ask us this. If we know this truth now, that a judgment is coming, why wouldn't we live appropriately now in the present as we prepare for the future? Why not store up genuine riches by building properly on the foundation of Jesus for his glory and not our own? If you know it's coming, why not prepare adequately? And so the church is like a field. It's also like a, found, it's also like a building where Christ is the foundation and we're called to build appropriately, but there's a third one. There's a third image Paul gives and that's of a temple. The church is like a temple where the spirit of God dwells in us. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In the Old Testament, we know this. The spirit of God, his very presence dwelled in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple. But when Pentecost came, the Lord came down and he now dwells in the presence of his people. Paul even takes it a step further. If you were to turn the page and you'd see in chapter 6, when he talks about fleeing sexual immorality, he'll say, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And so the spirit of God's presence, whether you, whether you realize it, whether you feel it, the reality of God's word is that right now at Bethesda Church, God's presence is here in this temple. And if that doesn't already blow your mind, that doesn't already blow your mind, do yourself a favor and go back to chapter two sometime and you see how you can have the mind of God. Paul said there, he says, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches things, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And here's the verse. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Only a person and his spirit can know what's really going on in the inside. Aaron has a terrible poker face. What you see is what you get. It's just been, been how my life has been. It's been a curse, a blessing at the same time. So I got to make sure that what's in the heart is, is actually correct, right? And so for some of us, though, you have a good poker face. And that poker face can hide what's really going on in the inside. And only your spirit can discern what is really there. It's the same thing for God. Only the spirit of God knows the mind of God. It's amazing if you really dwell on it. Like, think about all of the people whose approval you have sought, and you've wondered, do I really have it or not? Or think about all the people in your life, or ever come through your life, and you've wanted to know their opinion because of some project, some thing you're working on, or, 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 or some truth that they may be able to share with you. And at the end of the day, you've gone, do I really know what they're thinking? You found that happen? I know I've found that happen. But the truth is, you never have to deal with that when it comes to your Lord. You never have to ask whether 
or not. You know the mind of God and what he thinks of you. Because you have the spirit of God, you have the mind of God. You know that you have the Lord of Heaven's army's approval. You know that every time you repent, you don't have to wonder whether or not you have his forgiveness. His forgiveness is yours because his word says it, and the spirit that is in you confirms it. You don't have to wonder whether he loves you. You don't have to wonder whether he delights in you or whether he cares for you. God's word says it, and the spirit that is in you confirms it. What a joy to have to know the security you have in Jesus Christ this morning. So take the word, put the spirit together with it, and have the assurance that only he can give you. I mean, come on, that's a reason for joy. So let the spirit of truth sustain you as you gather in this temple today. God loves this temple. Watch that word. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Returning to our main theme of addressing church division, what a, what, a, what a weighty thought again to think about, that if you are a divisive person in God's church, it will not ultimately be the elders, the sheepdogs of the church that you will have to come against. It will ultimately be the Lord who stands in your way to protect his bride, the church, the temple. Watch out. Field building temple. God gives the growth. Christ, our firm foundation, and the temple where the Spirit dwells. What a reassurance and joy and comfort that he hasn't left us alone. Paul's going to sum it up for us, and he brings it home. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God, is God's. A wise church realizes that it belongs to God and not to anyone else. A wise church cares more about the wisdom that comes from God than the wisdom that comes from the world. In our day, you have heard that phrase which I can't stand. And it is that phrase of being on the right side of history. Who cares about being on the right side of history when you know that you will be on the right side of Jesus come judgment day? That is a much better place to know where you stand there than according to the whims of the culture. True wisdom also comes with a true freedom. Worldly wisdom points to that strength, to success, to accomplishment. But the foolishness of God, really the wisdom of God, points to weakness on a cross. It points to, by all worldly estimation, failure at the moment of a criminal's death. But godly wisdom says this is the moment where victory was accomplished. It's all about Jesus. So who gives a rip about scheming in God's church when you have Jesus on your side? Who cares about our wisdom? Who cares about boasting in any man? Who cares about anything else when you have the one who laid down his life for you and resurrected from the grave? What a reassurance. He's earned it by his blood. Church, you are his. You do not belong to yourself, but you belong to the Savior. 
who bought you with the price. And so as we put to death disunity in God's church, let us stand on Christ, the solid rock, our firm foundation. After all, I think I heard somewhere that by comparison, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron. 